I'd like to invite you to open your Bibles, if you have them with you, to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 6. Follow along as I read, starting at verse 27. You may also follow along on the large screen as I read. Let us hear God's Word proclaimed. But to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other also. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks you. And if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners, expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies. Do good to them and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great and you will be children of the Most High because He is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. Do not judge and you will not be judged. Do not condemn and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Give and it will be given to you. A good measure pressed down, shaken together and running over will be poured in your lap. For the, with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. May the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable to you, O God, our rock and our redeemer. And the people said, Amen. Can you sing two octaves higher than you can normally sing? One octave, one octave is another eight notes. Then try another octave on top of that. It's impossible. We can't sing or shout or make a noise two octaves above our normal range. It's impossible. It is impossible also for someone to sing the high moral standards of the Sermon on the Mount. Luke's version is called the Sermon on the Plain. Today we borrow a little bit from Matthew's version as we walk through Luke's version. Those notes are very high, way outside our range of possibility. Or to change the metaphor, if you are one who likes an adventure, think about mountain climbing. Think about Mount Everest. Its elevation is some 29,000 feet, about five times the highest peak in Virginia. 99.9% of us cannot scale the peak of Mount Everest. We just can't do it. Likewise, we can't climb to the moral heights that Jesus lays out for us in this passage. Whether reading Matthew's version or Luke's, it's just too high for us to attain. Now, if you were to go over and try to climb Mount Everest, there are a few Sherpas who 
and others, the elite, who could help you climb to the top, but they are very few. But the point is, no one has ever climbed to the top of the Sermon on the Mount. No human being can do that. The mountaintop is too high for us to climb, but it is there to inspire us, to motivate us, to point us up. But none of us can actually climb to the heights of Jesus' example. You might have heard the name Albert Schweitzer. A hundred years ago, the great Christian missionary, he held Jesus or the early church, which actually recorded this teaching, never intended that we could live like that or at least that long or very, very long. Schweitzer held that the early church believed that Jesus would be returning to earth soon in a few years at most, and that the command to love one's enemy was a temporary edict, what was perhaps an interim ethic. It was like holding your breath. We can all hold it for a little while, but sooner or later we must breathe again. Jesus, however, did not immediately return, and the church was stuck with an ethical command that Schweitzer said no one could live up to. And just like none of us can sing two octaves above our normal range, you can find the notes, Jeff, on the piano. You can find those notes on a violin. We can hear those notes. We can aspire to those notes, but we cannot sing them because they are beyond our reach. The words of today's scripture are like that. They point us to a better way, to a higher way. The life of one person who actually could do all of that was named Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God. And you've heard me read the text, the sermon that he preached that today's passage begins with, love your enemies. Love your enemies. These are hard words to do. And I want to say to you today, church, to remember this. Remember that you are not the enemy. We are not our enemy. We are brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus. We are the church. Fellow Christian believers are not your enemy. To help with that, some of you might be redskins and other cowboys, but you are not enemies in this room. Some might be Hokies and others might be Hoos, but you are not enemies. Some might be Republicans and others Democrats, some Independents, but you are not enemies. Some might be a little bit country, and others might be a little bit rock and roll, but you are not enemies. Race fans, some of you might be Ford and others Chevy, Toyota too, but in here you are not enemies. Some are Mac and others are what? PC, but you are not enemies in here. Some... Share a gospel of social justice and you're real concerned about meeting the needs of others in the name of Jesus. And others are more concerned about preaching and evangelism, making sure that people hear that word and come to the Lord. People come to the Lord both ways, through our ministries, hands-on, and through proclamation of God's word. But no matter which focus we bear, we are not enemies. These came uh, to me this morning in my quiet time and I jotted them down on this note to thought maybe it would help illustrate that just a little bit. But when Jesus said this, love your enemies, what does he mean? Does he mean 
when he says, do good to those who hate you, not to resist evil. If somebody slaps you on one cheek, offer the other. What do these words mean? A pastor and father lamented that his son, his teenage son, was beat up and left in the road by some of his peers at school. And the pastor says, love your enemies? Does this not mean... Does this mean not to resist people who are evil? If someone hits the right side of the jaw of my son, do you mean that he's supposed to offer the the left side of his face too? What does Jesus mean for him to do? Or a woman and mother who is in an abusive relationship comes to church trying to find hope and she hears these words from Jesus. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other also in verse 29a. And her children would wonder, what is mother to do? The beaten up mother wonders, what do I do in this situation? Do I divorce the man? Threaten to leave him? What message do I give my children if I remain? Do I send the message that it's okay for daddies to beat up on mommies? Mommies have to put up with such things. How do I understand this verse when Jesus says, turn the other cheek? What did he mean? Sadly, misunderstanding of this verse has met misery in the many lives of wives and children who have suffered abuse. And let me say clearly today, as I seek to proclaim this passage of Scripture, to interpret this, that no abuse is acceptable. No abuse is acceptable. Not physical, not verbal, not any kind of inappropriate touch is acceptable or okay. And if you or you know somebody who's experienced some of this hurt, there are people like guidance counselors in our schools, teachers in our schools, a principal who can help. There are social workers who can help. There are pastoral counselors and other kinds of counselors who can help us with these concerns that we have if we have been hurt. Police officers and other Law enforcement can be a help in any kind of need like this. And I want to ensure you that to turn the other cheek, as Jesus is saying, is not meant to be heard literally in a situation like this. So we must understand what he's he's saying in this message. I don't believe that Jesus is telling us to be doormats, to passively accept abuse. Rather, I believe that Jesus is teaching us one way to, a non, to non-violently resist hurt and abuse. A way that is not the way of the world to deal with people who hate us or seek to hurt us. Gandhi, for example, he developed a whole philosophy on nonviolence. He was from India, bright and articulate, educated as a lawyer, trained to be an English gentleman, to dress like one and act like one. But in a night of an amazing conversion, he saw what he felt was a greater truth. Truth with a capital T. He saw the truth. He renounced his wealth and chose a life of radical simplicity, giving away all of his jewels and wealth to the poor. And he began to practice nonviolence and passive resistance to all of the evil that he experienced and the discrimination he experienced uh, against fellow Indians in South Africa. In the 1930s, during a riot in the salt mines of South Africa, thousands of Indians were beaten, arrested, and killed 
But no one under the leadership of Gandhi fought back. Gandhi became a symbol of the power of nonviolence. He was eventually killed by a violent assassin's bullet and became an even stronger symbol of nonviolent resistance to our world. And I believe that's what Jesus is seeking to communicate in this sermon. That in the first century, Jesus practiced nonviolence and passive resistance, and we Christians are to do the same today. I believe that's what Jesus is telling us. In a sermon called Loving Your Enemies, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. preached about this as well. I understand that he wrote the sermon while in jail in Georgia, and he said this, of course this is not practical. The way that people are living is a matter of getting even, of hitting back, of dog eat dog. My friends, we have followed the so-called practical way for too long now, and it has led inexorably to deeper confusion and chaos. Time is cluttered with the wreckage of communities which surrendered to hatred and violence. For the salvation of our nation and the salvation of mankind, we must follow another way. This does not mean that we abandon our righteous efforts, King said. With every ounce of our energy, we must continue to rid this nation of the incubus of segregation. But we shall not, in the process, relinquish our privilege and our obligation to love. While abhorring segregation, we shall love the segregationalist. This is the only way, says Dr. King, to create the beloved community. This passage in the Sermon on the Mount is crucial for us to understand. As we hear the words of Jesus, it is critical to understand that much of what he is saying here relates to Aramaic hyperbole, exaggerations to help make a point. We are not to take these sayings literally or Aramaic hyperbole literally. You have to think like a Hebrew to understand what Jesus was saying and how the people heard it in that time. You have to understand Jewish slang language, for example. Like when we say something like, go jump in the lake, which is not kind, but that's what American people say, that doesn't mean you go jump in the lake. Or if somebody says, go fly a kite, that doesn't mean you're going to go fly a kite. Or if somebody says, get lost, that doesn't mean go out in the woods and get lost. These are slang terms that have other meanings, and people today understand what that means. Likewise, with the words of Jesus, there's much Jewish slang or Aramaic slang in the Sermon on the Mount, which we must not take literally. We get into trouble if we take it literally. We have to understand this in order to comprehend what Jesus was saying. Otherwise, we will have women and children who have been hurt coming in to a sanctuary to hear a message that could cause them more hurt. I hope that makes sense. I believe the linchpin of this passage today is found in verse 31 and verse 36. Verse 31 is Luke's version of the golden rule. Do to others as you would have them do to you. This totally changes the concept of reciprocity that the Jews had learned in the law. Jesus, you remember, said, I have come not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. 
to help bring a new way to turn some old ways upside down. Think an eye for an eye or tooth for a tooth where it used to be said you would get retribution. You would treat someone else in the same way that you've been treated. But Jesus says, do to others as you would have them do unto you. There is not an, uh, an act of reciprocity according to what I understand Jesus saying. And then verse 36, be merciful as your Father is, mercy, is merciful. This verse, Jesus points to God, the ultimate example, who is love and who sent His Son to give His life for us. While we were still yet sinners, Christ died for us. Look at the examples Jesus used. If someone strikes you on the cheek and it was typically a backhanded slap with somebody's right hand, it would hit you and then you were supposed to turn the other. And if you did that, the right-handed slap wouldn't be able to hit the left cheek. So you have to understand what's going on beneath the text. Or if someone takes your cloak, give them your shirt too. Uh, He's saying, give more. But he's not saying subject yourself to more hurt. If someone in Matthew's version says, walk a mile, be willing to go too. If uh, in Luke's version, give to everyone who begs from you. Lend everyone without expecting something in return. Matthew's version, do not resist one who is evil. Jesus is saying, take the high road. Don't try to repay evil with evil. Overcome evil with good. Jesus is inviting his disciples to be generously compassionate and forgiving as his heavenly father is generously compassionate and forgiving. In these examples, his followers, later called Christians in the book of Acts chapter 11, were not to retaliate, but rather were to do something good. Could you imagine what our world would be like today if when people were wronged that everyone did something good in return could you imagine the ripple effect that that would have across our land and across our world this idea was very radical in jesus time and it is very radical today but that is the high note to which we are called that is the peak we must seek to climb with jesus help These ethical standards are only attainable for him and him alone. And with his help, we aspire to arrive toward that place. We will never get there, but we aspire toward that place. These words inspire us. They motivate us. They help us to be more compassionate to those who are around us, to those who may wrong us, just as God is compassionate compassionate to them as well. God's grace is not fair. God's grace is available to all, no matter what their situation or walk of life. Just as the sun shines on the good and evil, on the good, so the sun shines on the evil. As it rains on the good, it rains on the evil. So is God's grace poured out on all people who would receive it. To those who do us evil, we seek to return an act of kindness as opposed to an act of revenge. Have you ever gotten an email and you wrote a reply and you hit send and you regretted it? Have you ever posted something on social media and you wish you hadn't? 
these words of Jesus can even affect and have an impact on our day-to-day practices and how we treat other people. If you are bullied online, don't fall into retaliation. Go to the people in your school or who are in authority in whatever place you're in and report it so they can help you. We don't return acts of evil with evil. We overcome evil with good. Albert Schweitzer held that the early church never claimed that folks could live by absolute love, at least not for long. But nevertheless, that is our goal. The sayings of Jesus in the Sermon on the Plain are not a diagram of how things work in the world, but they are a picture of how things work in the kingdom of God. A world not yet, but that ought to be. A world that is not yet, but that ought to be. And we live and work by faith, giving ourselves in service to the one whose kingdom is both in our midst and on the way. For the coming of that kingdom, we pray, waiting for that day when it it is as real on earth as it is in heaven. Can we really love our enemies? By the rules of the world, probably not. But by the grace of God, we can and we must. Former Boston Red Sox and Hall of Famer Wade Boggs, he's a third baseman, hated Yankee Stadium. If you know baseball, you know that he despised Yankee Stadium. But not because of the Yankees, he would eventually play there. They never gave him much trouble. But he hated going to Yankee Stadium because of one fan. Every time the Red Sox visited the Yankees, this guy who sat close as he could to Wade Boggs in the field would torment him, criticize him, ridicule him, throw obscenities and insults at him. And it's hard to imagine getting under the skin of a player, but this guy knew just how to do it. One day as Boggs was warming up, the fan was in his typical seat and he began yelling, Boggs, you stink! Boggs, you this, Boggs, you that, hurling obscenities as he had before. And this time, Boggs, he had enough. And he went over to the the side and addressed the fan and said, Are you the one who's always yelling at me? Why, yes, I am. And Wade Boggs stopped, and he pulled out a brand new baseball from his pocket and a pen And he autographed it, and he gave it to the fan. Never again did he receive insults from that man. Love your enemies. It just might change them. We know it will change you and me. Pray with me. Thank you for tough words, Lord. And thank you for the grace to seek to live by them. We pray that you help us in our daily walk to love others as you have first loved us. And help us 
when we feel pressed in or threatened, not only to draw on our faith and the strength that it provides, but also others around us who can help. May it be so. In the name of Jesus, amen.